indeed. We long for that day. And perhaps as you were singing those songs, you were wondering, how is it that I can have such a hope as to have life beyond the grave? It is grounded in the very one that we were singing to and singing about, and that is found in Jesus Christ alone. So if you have not yet come to a point in time in your life where you have embraced the one that we're singing to and the one that we're singing about, you have not yet come to terms with your own sin and recognize that you need a Savior and that Christ alone is able to save, I would compel you to do that yet this morning, to trust in Jesus for hope, for salvation. He indeed is mighty to save. He indeed is holy, as we've repeated throughout the choruses of the songs that we've sung, and he is indeed worthy of all of that. And as we transition into a time of um, the, the message, and time where we talk about God's Word and see how it relates and pertains to our own life, I want to begin by asking you a question. Have you ever misjudged a person or misjudged a situation in your life? As you've taken in the information, as you analyzed it, have you ever misjudged or gotten it wrong? I think it's safe to say that our interpretation of people and events doesn't always turn out to be 100% accurate. This uh, came to pass this past week as I was watching my Packers play. Unfortunately, I am a a Packers fan in the post-Aaron Rodgers era, which has proven to be a rather sad time for us. So uh, we're just like, uh, I'm also a Cubs fan, so that's a really sad predicament. As we have said in perpetuum, uh, it's a building year. So it's it's a building year for the Packers. Uh, One defensive player in this last game that we played uh, and I use we, obviously, loosely. I'm not on the uh, Packers. I'm saying it as a, as a fan of the Green Bay Packers. Uh, when we were playing, one defensive player in particular was giving us a bunch of grief. He was pressuring our line. He sacked, uh, he sacked our quarterback a couple times. He blew up a lot of good plays. And during a lull in the game, kind of a, uh, a point where no play was happening, the announcers took an extended bit of time to dote on this particular player, to really praise him. They talked about his incredible skill, they talked about his dedication, they talked about his love for the game, and all the while, a sideline camera, if you're picturing it, was trained on this player as he sat on the bench and as he looked out on the field during this break in the game. The announcers continued to gush over his family life, and they even got into speak about his moral excellence, how great of a guy he was, his perseverance in the face of trials, all the ways that a, a secular individual could dote on somebody. They were heaping it on them. Well, this player finally noticed that the camera was just like four feet from his face. So he turned, looked directly at the camera, looked for a second, and then uttered just one single very intentional word. There was no audio on him. This word is utterly unmistakable, however, when it's sounded out, and it serves as one of the more vile words that a person could say. Perhaps we've grown accustomed to our athletes, our actors, our musicians, other culturally elevated individuals or groups acting in such a way, in a way that's rather vile or repugnant, but think about it. With the eyes of the nation upon him, understanding that the viewers would range from adults to small children, he took this unique opportunity to present himself in such a repugnant manner. And though the game didn't start right up, the play did not begin, after this moment, the announcer's praising commentary ended quite abruptly and quite understandably. With a single word, the announcers were discredited as fools, but you and I always get it right, don't we? 
when we assess and judge a person or a situation. I think if we're honest, we all understand that feeling. You give a resounding endorsement to your brother's kid, so your friend ends up hiring him just in time for your nephew to not show up and to shirk all his chores and responsibilities. You got it wrong. Or you recommend a restaurant to a couple only to find out after the fact that that particular restaurant gave them salmonella. That's an opportunity to say, sorry guys, I got that one wrong. Uh, Our church family is continuing our theme, Hope for Everyday Life, and one of our key passages for this year comes out of Romans chapter 15. It says, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this theme has led us to conduct an in-depth study through First and Second Peter as we're growing in grace and knowledge. And this theme is drawn from the last verse of Second Peter. So these two books, the very last verse says this, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. And wouldn't it be nice if all the information we were receiving in our world were consistent with the true knowledge and grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? If we didn't have to vet or practice discernment for anything, we just, whatever we heard about Christ, everyone has the intention of portraying Him in a right and proper manner, and we could just presume it to be the case. Unfortunately, that isn't the case, and not just from those who are out there. False teaching and false teachers persist within the church. And one of Peter's stated goals for us is to be on guard regarding those teachings and regarding those teachers. Paul, one of the apostles, also weighs in in Acts chapter 20. He says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. He's talking to the elders in the church of Ephesians at this time. Among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves. Are you picturing the imagery These foaming-at-the-mouth wolves with the intent to tear and rip and destroy will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And he's talking to the Ephesian elders here. From among your own selves, men will arise. He may have been speaking to one of those individuals at his departure, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. And while it would be fun to camp out on portions of Scripture that are nice and, and fun to talk about, the heights of elation, so forth... We can't neglect sections of Scripture simply because they don't make our tummy feel so great when we talk about them. We have to discuss difficult manners. We must talk about false teachers because false teachings do exist. The loving father warns his child of the dangers of playing on the road. The caring pastor preaches the whole counsel of Scripture, much like Paul. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I'm innocent to the blood of all men, for I did not shrink away from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. He didn't shrink away from that. He, he declared the entire counsel of Scripture to them. Sometimes it'll look like Romans chapter 8 as we're talking about the beauties of the gospel and its implications upon our lives, how we are adopted as sons and daughters in Christ. And those are fun portions of Scripture to be in, are they not? It's great to be talking about the beautiful implications of the gospel. Other times, It'll look like 2 Peter chapter 2, which is why Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is judge of the living and the dead. That's a heavy charge, isn't it? I solemnly charge you by the God of the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom. What is his charge? Preach the word. 
Be ready in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled. They will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. These ravenous wolves don't always look like tearing and ripping and destroying. Sometimes they tell the flock what they think they want to hear and in so doing lead to their demise and their destruction. But on behalf of the pastors of Faith Church, I want to thank you guys for being a church family that wants to hear the counsel of the Word of God, the full counsel of it. I want to thank you guys that you want and have ears not just to be tickled, but to be fed truth. As a staff, we've never sat around during staff meetings and said, now, what could we preach in order to garner more tithe money? What could we possibly do that would do that? Or how could we tickle some ears? Our primary consideration surrounds preaching the full counsel of God's word, its peaks as well as its valleys. And what's even more comforting is the response that we, as a pastoral team, would receive if we deviated from this commitment to preach the whole counsel of God's word. We would have you guys discontinue to come. You guys would stop. We don't want our ears tickled. We want to hear truth. We want to hear the full counsel of God. So with that sentiment in mind, let's continue into our series in Second Peter, and we'll begin in chapter 3, walking through verses 1 through 9. If you would mind opening up there with me, please turn. If you're using one of the Bibles in the chair back in front of you, that's going to be on page 184 on the back section of the, the Bible, where Peter discusses a very specific group of false teachers. Again, he's dealt with various groups, even broadly speaking, of false teachers, but he narrows in on a particular group in our time here, a group of ravenous wolves. Though false teaching rears its ugly head in many forms, this one is particularly egregious. If you remember the end of chapter 1 of 2 Peter, Peter grounded our hope in a future event. He had us looking forward to a particular future event. What was that event? He was pointing our direction and our thoughts and our affections towards. Do you remember? What was he pointing our our thoughts and directions towards? The return of Jesus. Amen. He was telling us to look to Jesus coming. He's coming back. Put and ground your hope in that. There's a preponderance of voices giving their tombstone-polishing views of the second coming of Jesus, much like the football announcers trying to paint as pure a morally comprised player, but... Peter shows in their view of the coming of Jesus where we ought to be grounding our hope. There's, there, he shows that one single word can dispel their lies. And far from a vile term voiced into a camera, it's a rather innocuous word written in your Bible. One single word able to dispel the lies of individuals seeking to draw people away from the second coming of Jesus. Can you guess what that innocuous word may be according to our passage? I'll give you a teaser. That one word is Water is water. So to that word and others, let us turn in Second Peter chapter 3. This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you in which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintained this, that argument that they just said, 
It escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of what is the witness he calls forth in order to dispel this lies. The, the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the word, the world rather, at that time was destroyed, being flooded again by this testimony of water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord isn't slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. This is God's word, the word of the Lord that we're gonna be walking through today and looking out of this passage for three ways to protect your heart from false teachings, especially as it intersects with celebrating God's patience and being thankful for it. And this first way to protect our heart from false teaching is to allow God's word to keep us spiritually sharp. Let God's word keep you spiritually sharp. If you recall our time at the end of Second Peter 1, that's the point Peter was seeking to make. He equated the word of God to a lamp and the coming of Christ to the dawn, the, the morning star. And we are to fixate our thoughts and our attentions and our focus being grounded in the light that is revealed by God's word, awaiting the day like the coming dawn where Jesus will come. And we are to fixate on scripture for his word is a lamp to our feet. It is a light to our path. But truth is rarely a matter sufficiently stated just once, isn't it? Truth is rarely a matter sufficiently stated just once. For instance, did you ever need a reminder from your mama that it's disrespectful to talk back or did just the one time do the trick? We could call your mama as a witness and see if that was the case for you. Uh, we need to keep God's word in front of us by placing value on being reminded. It's all right to be reminded. We're talking about the same gospel. We're singing to the same Jesus. We need a constant and perpetual reminder that our hearts are to be affixed on him. We get this from the first verse. Now this, beloved, is the second letter I'm writing to you in which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. My guess is that you need a reminder of what's true just about as often as I need a reminder of what is true. What does the song say? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. The last chapter of the first book that Peter references contains this imperative directly towards church leaders. He said, shepherd the flock of God among you. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. God's word, as we've seen in uh, Acts chapter 20 as well as elsewhere, continually calls us sheep. And is that a ringing endorsement of our capability and intellect? Is that why God keeps calling us sheep? Certainly, it ought to be characteristic of our tenderness and willingness to follow the good shepherd. But the thing about sheep is they need a constant reminder, and you and I are certainly no different. And step one in this process, as 2 Peter 3, 1 would indicate, is to ensure that you fall into the category of one who has a sincere mind. That can only come from one place. Peter talks about it within the context of this letter in his opening um, salvo here. He says, Simon Peter, who is a bondservant and the apostle of Jesus Christ. He's a servant of Jesus who is this Jesus? To those whom have received the faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Just as I talked about in the beginning of my message, they have placed their faith in Jesus for salvation alone. 
By faith, making Christ your Lord and Savior is the first and essential step to all of this. That's the only way that we can have a sincere mind to be, as it is, born again. And once one is born again, what comes next? Then, like newborn babies, as Peter goes on to say in, in 1 Peter 2, 2, long for the pure milk of the Word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Let me give a, a little bit of a confession here. Give me a jar of sauerkraut and a fork, and you will have one happy Stefan. I love me some sauerkraut. And ever since I was little, I would, I would go out to the, when I started shopping on my own in college, I would go out and I'd get uh, sauerkraut and eat it. And it wasn't until college that I discovered this was a rather uncommon practice to just eat sauerkraut right out of the, the jar. Um, but that's because I'm not unique to this acquired taste within my family. Several nitschkis enjoy the pleasure of raw sauerkraut right out of the jar. Do you not? Is this a strange thing to you? It's an odd thing to those who weren't raised in a house where this was relatively common to eat sauerkraut right out of the jar, uh, but it's so pervasive to us, it's almost as if to be a nitschke is to enjoy raw sauerkraut. It's a strange thing to the insincere mind to look upon a person who longs for an ancient book as their source of spiritual nourishment. Doesn't that seem like it would be a strange thing to them? Yet, to be a Christian is to love God's word. You can't have one without the other. We are to long for it like a baby longs for milk. It'd be like trying to find a nitschke who didn't like sauerkraut. Good luck with that venture. But enough about spoiled cabbage. Let's grow in our sharpness by marveling at the unified nature of Scripture. So looking back at our our passage, Peter redirects our attention to the word that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets. What's he talking about when he says holy prophets? Did they have terms like Old Testament and New Testament when Peter was writing this? No, he's speaking of the, New, the Old Testament writings and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. What is he referencing when he says apostles? He's saying what we're writing right now, what we would reference as the New Testament. So where is Jesus' second coming in the Old Testament, you may ask? The short answer is it is pervasive. It's running all throughout the Old Testament. Here are a couple of examples. Isaiah 66, behold, the Lord will come in fire. Fire, by the way, is gonna come up in our passage today, or you have seen it already, and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. Again, that element bursting forth, for the Lord will execute judgment by fire. There it is again, and by his sword on all flesh, and those slain by the Lord will be many. Or in Malachi 4, for behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace. Again, elements of fire, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze fire terminologies, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Other passages in the Old Testament that refer to Jesus' return is Daniel 9, Zechariah 12, Jeremiah 33, Amos 9, just to list a few more places. Even if you're only looking at the Old Testament, you'd have a pretty uh, deceived mind to believe that Jesus isn't coming back. And the only a single word causes the arguments to crumble. We still have the validation of the New Testament that talk about this. Sorry, I'm a bit behind. Validation of the New Testament that will discuss Jesus coming again. As we talked about from chapter one, where you find your ultimate authority is of utmost importance. Where are you placing the foundation of your hope? And that's what makes the latter half of verse two so important. Not only is the Old Testament scripture, but the New Testament is the very word of God as well. 
2 Peter 3, 2, the latter half of the commandment says, the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. The unified nature of Scripture, Old Testament between New Testament, is an essential doctrine of our faith. And though I don't want to jump um, the gun on next week's teaching, it ties in well to what we're talking about here. Next week, we're going to be getting into this, but it says, regard the patience of our Lord and as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, which, are, which some of these things are hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. They do so to their own destruction. Peter equates the writings of Paul to be on par with, quote, the rest of the scriptures, which is a technical term, grafas, that refers to God's word. And there are, are and a multitude of other passages in the New Testament that also speak to the coming of Jesus. I was talking with Pastor Aaron this morning about you can hardly get to an epistle, you can hardly get to a book in the New Testament that doesn't discuss the coming of Jesus. So the Old Testament verifies the coming of Jesus. The New Testament verifies the coming of Jesus. Its frequency serves as a reminder that we constantly need to be told truth. Though it hasn't come yet, he certainly will, but... Be prepared to answer those who mock Christ's return. Another way we are to prepare and to rest in God's patience is to be prepared to answer those who mock Christ's return. We're pulling this from verse 3. Mockers will come with their mocking. And while mockery can serve as a tool to defend truth and righteousness, here it displays the characteristics of their ridicule. Looking into and dissecting their mockery, let's first look at the timing of their mockery. And Peter couches this discussion, it will pertain to the last days. So he says, in the last days is when this mockery will take place. First John 2 claims that these are the last days in reference to the time after Jesus' first coming. And while that's certainly true, Peter's talking about another specific time. And Paul references it, and you notice we're going back and forth just as Peter does later in the epistle. Paul says this, realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come. So in our epistle, as well as in 2 Timothy 3, the last days here is referring to the second coming of Jesus. It is a specific time that he's pointing to. And Peter is putting this up as a sign that we've entered into those final days when people will explicitly deny the coming of Christ by way of mockery. Why would anyone do this? Why would anyone mock the coming of the Lord and Savior Jesus? Well, let's look at the motivation that might be behind this. Curiously, our passage points out a rather unexpected source. What would be driving people to mock this? Verse 3 mentions that these ridiculers will be following after their own lusts. What sort of lust would lead to the mockery of Christ's second coming? How about the lust for power, the lust for power over others? Christ's coming represents the dethroning of all human powers as Jesus ushers in his kingdom and his reign Thus, anyone who has, from an earthly perspective, formed or garnered power or influence will be stripped of their reign at that time. Well, how about the, the lust of the flesh? So power is certainly at play. How about the lust of the flesh? Whether that's greed, gluttony, sexual perversions, laziness, anything else would drive a person towards this end, towards perverting and mocking the second coming of Jesus. Because when he comes, all uh, the things that were hidden will be brought to light in the form of judgment. So surely those who love those things of the world more than Christ would, finding, would find it rather a horrible and horrifying prospect to lose that which they value and gain only wrath for it. 
There are many other possibilities, but it leads us to the same conclusion as Peter's in our passage. Lust will drive mockery, and lust will drive doubt. But before we leave this point, I want to make it clear that it hits home in our own point, and we don't pass right over it. To the degree we, number one, believe in, and two, long for Christ's return, that correlates with our own internal lusts. Let me say that again. To the degree that we, one, believe in, are convinced by Jesus' return, and two, long for that return, it correlates with our own internal lusts. So when we long for Jesus and we are convinced that He is, in fact, coming, we are driven by the appropriate desires to be with Him. But when we are convinced by other things, that, that leads us astray, and we ourselves can fall into such folly. So before we collectively say, those wicked mockers, How in the world could they believe such a blatant lie that Jesus isn't coming? See that there are times in our own heart where doubt arises and groanings fade. In fact, there are outright times where we may think it'd be pretty bad timing if Jesus came right about now. So Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If we're treasuring this world and the things of it, in other words, lusting after the things of the world, we'll fall into the camp of mockers. We will. But if we're treasuring Christ, then our confidence and our hope is in his return as it appropriately ought to be. But there are a couple more things to discuss regarding the nature of the ridicule of these mockers. We have to talk about its content. Peter gives us a snippet of what they say. Where is the promise of his coming? Do you remember our NFL announcers that we talked about early on? They heaped an incredible amount of praise upon someone who turned out to be, in a word, unpraiseworthy. And when your standards of truth are grounded in the untrusty foundation of the world's logic, confusion and crumbling is bound to occur. We'll be proven to be fools as a result of it. For instance, look at the illogic of false teaching that had infiltrated the church in Thessalonica as well. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if it were from us, to the effect of the day of the Lord has already come. What was the issue they were facing here? Not that Jesus wouldn't come, but that Jesus had already come. Imagine if you had a good theology of Christ's return in his kingdom, you would know it to be a place where Jesus reigned, where suffering was reduced, a time where Christ was sitting on his throne. If that was your theology and someone had already said, Jesus has already come, you'd be like, gee, If this is the kingdom of Christ, it sure wasn't what I imagined it to be. All my friends are being slaughtered, and it could be me that's next. Paul, like Peter, was pointing to them to the firm foundation of God's word, not the brittle sand of man's lust-driven logic, which brings us to the rationale of the mockers. Here's where we get to the argument and saying, where's the promise of his coming? For, so listen to the nature of it. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, in other words, ever since the patriarchs had died and passed away, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Philosophically, this is what's known as uniformitarianism. Try saying that 10 times fast. It's fun, but also confusing. But anyways, philosophically, it's uniformitarianism, which denies the divine intervention throughout uh, God in world history. Uh, To kind of simplify the argument, it says what has been will be. So that which has been, at least from a natural perspective, is that which is, that which is going to be. <clears throat> in other words, since we continue around the sun uh, from a world perspective, and the seasons come and the seasons go, uh, the natural order of things is reliably persists. 
and it will continue ad infinitum so far as they can tell. Why is the concept of uniformitarianism important within the context of Faith West in 2023? Stefan, why are you talking about this? Why does it matter for us today? Well, for one, it's still taught in different forms just down the hill. John MacArthur says this, the rise of modern uniformitarianism occurred largely because of the efforts of the 19th century British lawyer and geologist Charles Lyell. Not, not too many people may have heard his name, but his book, Principles of Geology, had a profound impact on the scientific community of his day. So his ripples reached the rest of us today. In fact, Lyell's uniformitarianism was a primary pillar on which Charles Darwin established his theory of evolution. Darwin, even for his part, took a copy of Principles of Geology with him during his famous voyage on the Beagle to the Galapagos and other islands off the Pacific coast in Southern America, in South America, rather. So do they still teach um, Darwinistic evolution down the, down the hill? Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm almost positive that they do. So lest we think none of this pertains to us today, it's the very culture in which we exist. It has permeated and infiltrated all aspects of our culture. It reminds me of a joke that a certain comedian said once. An older fish swims past two younger fish, offering this pleasantry. He says, hey, guys, how's the water? You know, kind of a, a common fish pleasantry, I suppose. Once the older fish is past the younger fish, one of the younger fish turns to the other and says, what in the world is water? <laughs> he had no idea. I know it's more of, a, more of a, a thing to think about than a thing to laugh at. So anyways, that's the joke. That he, that's why I said somebody else's joke, all right? I wasn't expecting you to laugh there. Uh, but we swim in an ecosystem of the world's order. Calling those matters out of Second Peter 3 irrelevant is as arrogant as a fish being clueless about water, saying it's not relevant what we talk about or what we live in. That's particularly perverse about uniformitarianism is its abuse of the goodness of God. Remember, we're talking about the goodness and resting in the patience of God. Because right after the flood, this was what his promise was to mankind. The Lord said to himself, I'll never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. And I'll never again destroy every living thing as I have done while the earth remains. So here it is. Here's what the uniformitarianism rather, place their hope and faith in while the earth remains, seed time, harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So taking this promise, the mockers twist it in an attempt to disprove one of the most essential tenets of the Christian faith. They take God's goodness and they pervert it in order to twist the coming of Jesus. John MacArthur says this, uh, Jesus Christ is coming back. Throughout the centuries, the reality of that wonderful promise has formed the crux of Christian expectation. It is the church's blessed hope, her utmost longing, and the great climax of salvation history, a time of redemption for believers and a time of judgment for God's enemies. It also marks the inauguration of Christ's earthly kingdom during which the saints will reign with him in holiness. This is what we're looking towards the hope of bodily resurrection, spiritual reward, and a righteous world system are all tied to Jesus' return. It's no wonder then that the earthly church found tremendous comfort in the second coming of Jesus. After all, the readers of this epistle had already endured much persecution from outside the church. Now they were experiencing internal turmoil from false teachers. Thus they longed for the return of their savior, the judge who would make all things right. So as we prepare to stand against those who would combat such an essential and hope-giving teaching, 
it's important to point out the error of their ridicule, specifically what it ignores. We see that it blatantly ignores the power of creation. For when they, they maintain this, that it, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water. So here's where our one word refutation does come in handy. The false teachers were saying that everything has persisted since the beginning, but ignore the unimaginably powerful event of creation itself. They say, well, everything is natural. Everything has persisted. God hasn't intervened within creation, but they're like, what about creation? (laughs) What about creation itself? Water, simultaneously representing life and chaos, was present as God called dry land to emerge. Thus, the witness of water serves as a sufficient rebuttal to their claim. But Peter continues with this one-word witness, talking about the horror of the flood. By God's powerful word, yes, he caused the land to emerge from water, through which the world itself at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. Peter is borrowing an argument from Christ here. Jesus in Matthew 24 says, for the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. So he knows this, Jesus knows this argument, so Peter is just borrowing from uh, something Jesus has already said. For as in those days, before the flood, they were eating, they were drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. There will be a bunch of uniformitarianists. There were in Noah's day, and there will be when Jesus comes again. How far did the water need to rise back in Noah's day before they began to be convinced by Noah's God and the truth therein? Which leads us to the certainty of eternal judgment. Based upon the certainty of creation, the certainty of the flood, the witness of water that we saw, we can rest assured that Christ's promise to return is indeed sure. By his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire. Remember, back in our previous passages, how fire is now used to talk about judgment, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Again, we have the repetition of God's agent acting within these earth-shaking events, his word. So notice the repetition of his word being used as the impetus behind each one of these dynamic events, but also the water is used primarily as the witness, but he calls forth another element now as a witness. We go from water representing life and chaos to fire representing refinement and wrath. The question then becomes, why is Peter talking about all this? Why are you bringing up the elements? Why are you bringing up these arguments? His arguments serve to refute the mockers, but they also serve to us as warnings. Where have you or I been influenced by this water in which we swim? Again, don't think these arguments a thing of the past, something that has just happened in Peter's day and they're no longer pervasive in our day. They are pervasive. Don't be the young fish who say, what in the world is water? Don't be the fish, the the individual that says, what in the world is culture? We are influenced by the culture in which we swim. Perhaps this goes beyond a tendency to wander into doubt and wander into lust. Maybe you yourself teach these egregious errors. Remember, that's who Peter is seeking to confront and combat in this epistle. If that's the case, if you are one who teaches these things, God's word is providing you with a warning. Repent to the coming king and look to the word as your standard instead. And where is all this leading to? We have to understand why Christ has not yet returned. Again, we are placing our hope in the patience of Jesus, thankful for it. 
How early were Christians guessing when Jesus would return? Do you have a, a guess of your own? How about before he even left? <laughs> Acts 1 says, so when they'd come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time? He's like, guys, I haven't even left yet. <laughs> is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or epochs in which the Father has fixed by his own authority. It's little surprise that every generation since that time has had the same question. And that's one of the reasons why Peter addresses the matter. He starts with the uniqueness of the Lord's perspective on the matter. We see this in verse eight as he says, don't let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like one day. How can this be that God has this perspective? Because God is the creator of time and he is not himself subject to it. He created it, but he did not put himself under it. Yes, so see if you can finish these, these sentences, these statements. Time flies when you're Yes, good, good mumbling. I think I got having fun out of that. Time flies when you're having fun in a watched pot. Never boils. I know that to be true, by the way. Uh, those may be fine axioms, but they're matters of perspective and not descriptions of reality, aren't they? A minute is still 60 seconds, whether you're cruising on a jet ski or waiting for your noodles to finish cooking. No matter what, it's still 60 seconds. But God can be perceived as simultaneously existing in past, present, in future, he's not given one minute at a time like the rest of us. This ought to lead us to worship and not worry. That's why Peter is bringing it up. Don't be worried. He's coming. A thousand days, a thousand years rather, is like one day to him and one day is like a thousand years. He's coming back. He's not slow as many of us count slowness. And not only is he unbound by time, but his tarrying reveals the beauty of the Lord's compassion through all of this. Our section closes with this marvelous truth. He isn't slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. The sun came up again this morning. I wrote that sentence on Tuesday when we usually write our sermons. The sun is coming up. The sun came up again this morning. It was written with two assumptions in mind. Number one, God's promise to allow day and night to persist will remain unbroken. And number two, if he wants he can come back before Sunday arrives. So I wrote that sentence with a caveat. But if he allows that, then he can, and if he allows Sunday to come, which he has, it's because of his patience, not because of his neglect. Oh, I forgot that I was coming back. That's not the reason. It's because of his patience. Every day that that sentence is true, the sun came up again this morning, serves as an opportunity for repentance, an opportunity for all the NFL announcers who are confidently calling the shots about their own life, not realizing that their entire set of presumptions can easily be refuted with one single word. It's an opportunity for all the sheep of Christ's fold to recognize their wandering and follow the light of his word back into fellowship with him once more. It's an opportunity for you and me to abandon doubt and worldly lusts and say with fellow believers, Jesus is coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, it's to your return that we do look. It's to your return that we do hope and have confidence that you will one day come. It might be tomorrow. It might be in the distant future. But Lord, that is our hope. 
and that is your promise. Father, I pray that we wouldn't see your patience as something as a, a grudgery or as a forgetfulness or anything other than your patience, wanting many others to come to faith in Christ Jesus. And if there be anyone in this room who would not know Christ, who would not have put their faith in him, have trusted in the witness of the water, saying that Jesus has, in fact, worked in and through his creation from the beginning of time into today, I pray that they would put their faith and trust in Christ. They would trust in the witness of the cross, and they would live for you here on out. Lord, I pray that you would be with each one of us as well. May we not be drawn by the lusts that entice, the lusts of this world that turn us into, be it functional mockers of your return. Allow us to be those who look to the return of Christ and have our confidence in that as well as our hope fixated on the same. We love you and ask this in Christ's beautiful name. Amen.